Hello. Hello, is this Fred? Uh, yes, it is. Well, hello. Uh, this is Mark from the Spoiler Room. How are you today, sir? Good. Good. Well, I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to us a little bit. Uh, we're doing a special issue uh, it episode excuse me, of our uh, Spoiler Room, and one of the movies we're going to talk about is Bad Girls from Mars, and so... I kind of was hoping maybe we could talk about that today, maybe a few of your other films. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, with Bad Girls from Mars, uh, where did the idea come up for uh, Bad Girls from Mars? Because it seemed like you were kind of uh, maybe, you know, having a little fun with the independent film scene in the movie. Well, first tell me, why are you interested in Bad Girls from Mars? Of of all the things we've done, of all the stuff I've done, years and years I've labored in this industry. Why that film? Well, uh, for me, one of the things is it was one of the films that came out. uh, Well, according to IMDb, it was 1990, uh, but actually shows a release date of 91. But uh, it's just one of my uh, favorite films of yours. Uh, and it's also part of our series where we're covering films that are celebrating a 25th anniversary. Uh, so mm, okay. that was one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about it. And the other one is, uh, yeah, it's one of my favorite films of yours outside of uh, Texas uh, Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. And so, um, so I was a little well, curious that, about it. Well, it had a strange, it had a strange history. A lot of our films have sort of peculiar histories. And um, it was a it was an opportunistic uh, film, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a film that we'd never planned to make. It was this just sort of came about. We had uh, started a movie once when uh, Roger had some sets uh, left standing from a movie called Mask of the Red Death that he was made with uh, Patrick McGee, and they were going to tear these sets down. And they said, you know, if you want to use these sets, these sets are going to be here for a couple days. And um, so we looked at them, and we said, well, these are pretty cool castle sets. So we got together with um, a stop-motion guy named Ernie Farina, who wanted to sort of be a writer, be a director. And we said, Ernie, um, can you write something uh, for these sets? And we were in a hurry. We could only get on them for two days. So Ernie wrote just enough script uh, to cover these two days. It wasn't even a whole script. It was just we kind of had an idea what this movie would be about. And uh, we got some actors together. We got Russ Tamblin and Lyle Wagner and some other people. And uh, we ran down um, to uh, uh, New Horizons or Concord or whatever, New World or whatever it was called then. And we shot these two days, uh, the sword and sorcery film. And um, then we had to take a break. Um, so then we, in the interim, um, we tried to put the rest of the script together. So we figured we needed four more days of filming uh, to finish this movie called Demon Sword. And um, so we came back later to finish it. But you had to rent the cameras. So when you rent a camera here in Hollywood, you you pay what's called a three-day week. And uh, you pay for three days, but you get the cameras for the week. And you pick them up on Friday, and you deliver them back a week from the following Monday. So you actually have them for, um, you know, Saturday Mm-hmm. through the following Sunday. I don't know how many days that is, maybe eight days or whatever it comes to. You pick them up on Friday, you get a Friday night out of it, too. So we, we looked at it and we said, well, you know, we only need it for four days. Well, how many days does that leave us sitting here holding all this equipment? And it came to a certain amount of days. And it looked like it was five, maybe, by my count. Mm-hmm. And um, we all got together and we started talking about it. And we said, we could almost make another movie on those off days. We've got all this equipment already paid for and we said, how much money is in the bench? We said, we got extra $19,000. We said, well, why don't we make, make a movie? And uh, so we all started thinking about it. We said, well, what can we do? We said, well, we all like Hollywood Boulevard, which was this Joe Dante movie that Roger had made. Right. We said, well, why don't we, do, why don't we do that? We'll make a movie about people making a movie. And uh, <clears throat> we had thought that we were going to get Burt Ward or, or um, Adam West or somebody to be in it. And so if you listen in the movies for a while, they're calling it Bat Girls from Mars. And, oh. and on the sets, sometimes you'll see a little bat symbol I was, on the I, set sometimes because we thought 
we were going to get like Adam West or something in there. And there are moments where they, in the actors, up to a certain day, they called it Batgirls from Mars. So the point, then we finally found out that we weren't going to get them. So then we started, the girls started, people started calling it Bad Girls from Mars. And uh, <laughs> the whole thing changed. <laughs> and um, it was probably one of the first movies that ever mentioned Ed Wood uh, in a film. And, and uh, sex change, um, cross-dressing, it was before, you know, it was before, um, you know, the, it was before the Johnny Depp film and before <laughs> all that other nonsense came along. Uh, and we were, we were sort of tying into that, that sort of stuff. And we didn't have any, any money. So we decided that we would just have these girls taking their clothes off all the time because we figured that was the one thing we could afford. And I think there's a line in the, in the movie, something about, um, if there, anything ever gets boring, just have some girl take her top off or something like that because we figured, you know, that, that was the only thing that we could do that would maybe help sell this little five-day movie. And it was funny how it worked out because Demon Sword, you know, tanked financially. Mm-hmm. It just did no business at all. It ended up with Troma, who ended up ripping us a new one financially, never reported to us, never paid us a dime. And Bad Girls from Mars, of course, ended up at Lionsgate, and uh, it, like, tripled its money. And, uh, and it was made very cheaply compared to the other film. And it did real well. Well, you said that it, that explains the little bat symbols that I noticed around the set. I was going to mm-hmm. ask you about those. <laughs> uh, well, Dean Martin lived across the street from one of the financiers, mm-hmm. and they tried and tried and tried to get Dean Martin to appear in this thing. And Dean finally said, you know, boys, thanks for asking. <laughs> but uh, he goes, I just don't feel like it. I'm just not feeling it. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it, it, there's so many uh, great references in there. Uh, you can't quite tell, too, that it was made in such sh- short amount of time. Uh, five days. I, five days. Uh, that's actually, mm-hmm. that's very impressive. <laughs> because it looks like it took it a lot longer. You got a number of location shots in there and uh, the sets and uh, a large cast, relatively. Uh, but Well, it was a non-sag mm-hmm. movie. And when it was first, when we first started making it, was called Emmanuel Goes to Hollywood. That was its original title, mm-hmm. and um, and it, that the the movie within the movie was Batgirls from Mars. Uh, but the the working title and the title I think on the slate in the movie is Emmanuel Goes to Hollywood, and that was the title of the movie when we made it. <laughs> and we changed it to Batgirls from Mars later. And. I have to say the cover art on Bad Girls from Mars really uh, was a little uh, familiar to Earth Girls Are Easy, and you even have the tag on there. Uh, did you have any say in the uh, artwork at all on the on the movie when it came out? Or well, that was done by Trimark. Mm-hmm. Um, we had done some studio type shoots, and we had done the same sort of poster photo shoot with Dee Dee Williams in the same sort of outfit. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, Vidmark or Trimark, whoever they were at the time, um, decided to put Brink Stevens on the cover instead of Edie Williams, and that was their doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't we didn't go in there with any key art. We sold the film to them upon completion. We didn't we didn't have to create any artwork of our own because we we didn't have to shop the film. But as soon as we showed it to them, we made the sale. Oh, nice! So we we didn't we didn't do any shopping around at all. Yeah, and in it, fact, the film that they released is eight minutes shorter than the movie we made. I was I was going to so ask the version you about we that. made is eight minutes longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure what they cut out because uh, I'm not sure that I ever watched the version they released. Um, yeah. <clears throat> there's supposedly uh, I saw some talk on the uh, online about it that there's a, a uh, kissing scene that they cut out uh, between I believe it was. Uh, is it Brink and Edie? Maybe. Um, it wouldn't have gone on very long, because uh-huh. there's no sex. There's no sex in the film. Right, uh, right. There wasn't any sex in the film at all. Because um, we said, because um, we said, you know, um, to get an R rating, they had to cut eight minutes on I said, well, why? I said to the ratings board, I said, why would we have, why would you have to have eight minutes worth of cuts to get an R rating? I said, there's, there's no sex in the film. At all. And they said, it's just the sheer volume <laughs> of nudity. <laughs> the sheer volume of nudity that, that, that disturbs us. 
<laughs> I said, this is such a harmless film. I said, it's such a harmless film. And I, I, today, I don't think that would be the case because it was, it was a very, you know, sort mm-hmm. of high school level type of, uh, of humor. But, you know, that, be that as it may. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you about the nudity, like the uh, one scene where uh, Edie's uh, undressing in the car as they're driving down the road. Uh, I imagine you did turn to uh, cut the road off or anything. Uh, Did you just have to shoot that really quick? Yeah, there's no permits or anything. We we did a. We again, we were trying to think of what could we do that would be so outrageous that would make this film special. And we decided that we would have her, I think it's a convertible, it's a convertible, I know, but I think it was a big Cadillac or something. And um, we thought we would drive right through Beverly Hills, right in broad daylight on a Sunday. And uh, we followed in a van, and Gary Graver was in the in the car. And um, we thought we'd have her change clothes a couple times, and she just laid on the trunk and threw the clothes off. We did some little inserts, I think, of the clothes sort of missing Gary's dog and mm-hmm. things like that. And, and we said, look, we'll, we'll be in the van. I said, if the cops get you, don't say anything. I said, we'll just go on and we'll come down to the police station and bail you out. I said, but <laughs> don't blow the whistle on the van in front of you. I said, you need somebody to bail you out. And we just drove around the neighborhood and, and uh, the cops never showed up. We pulled into the driveway of the house where we were based out of and we got away with it. The only place that we had any trouble was the moment we pulled up in front of the Burbank Airport and she walked out and gets in the car. They were all over us immediately. I mean, just pulling up in the car and having her walk straight out of the terminal and getting in the car, the airport police were all over us, but we still got it. <laughs> we still got it. Well, that, that's It was good. amazing. Yeah, I, think she, it... I think there's a shot in the film. I'm not, I'm not, I haven't seen it in a while, but I saw a photo. Mm-hmm. I, had, I saw a Polaroid photo in my collection of Edie sitting in a trailer. So I must have had, I must have had trailers for the actors. She's sitting on the steps of a trailer, like a honey-wagon trailer. She's wearing what I believe is the Alienator mm-hmm. costume from the movie Alienator. Yep. It was made out of Sapporo beer bottles or something. And I, I see her sitting there wearing this outfit. So I guess she must have been wearing it at some point in the movie. Maybe it was in the movie within the movie or something. Well, <laughs> so I will I say you are definitely a master of uh, making the most out of the budget on your films. Uh, not only with Bad Girls from Mars, but uh, Hollywood Chainsaw Harkers. Uh, pretty much all of your, uh, a lot of your films really show how you can stretch your dollar with indie films. Um, did, did, is that always the case uh, that you just uh, find that you have to get kind of creative uh, when you work on a limited budget? Well, it's tough on a movie like that because it was a movie within a movie, which meant that right. you had to have you had to have a camera that would be on camera, mm-hmm. and that a movie like when you on a movie like that, you don't have a lot of equipment, but then you have to have equipment that's on camera, so you have to have more lights than you would normally have because you have to have a light that's on camera and a camera that's on camera, and uh, you have to have crew members, and a lot of the crew members that are on camera are the crew members of the crew, <laughs> and uh, it's funny because of uh, John Mellick, he was Jennifer Anderson's brother, he is on camera with us there. He's still my AD today. Mm-hmm. He's one of my assistant directors now. And um, I, I, I'm in the film a couple times uh, myself. I, I step over the director in the alley. Um, and I think I walked, for no good reason, I think I walked through at one point carrying pages out of the script. <laughs> and I say, now, now we're back on schedule. But, but unfortunately, I have to turn up later in the film as a guy robbing a liquor store. Right. And it was a very weird situation because every morning I would show up and I would stand there and wait for two hours while Gary and him would light. And I, I got tired of it. <clears throat> so I decided I would like to start coming in an hour, hour and a half after call time. And this was a movie that Jonathan Ross and them started visiting the set for, for a show called Incredibly Strange Film Show or something like mm-hmm. that. Uh, it was a British TV show. And I had gone out with some girl, and I hadn't, I hadn't gotten her out of my house until about 2 o'clock in the morning. And I thought, that's okay, I'm going to go in an hour, an hour and a half late. And then the phone rings, and, and the guy tells me, says, Fred, the guy playing the other uh, crook, pulled up guy, he didn't show up. And we're ready to shoot. And I'm like, just getting out of, out of bed. So I jump <laughs> up, and I run in. I run down to this liquor store, 
and I've got five pages. I said, the only person who can play it was me. Mm-hmm. It's me and Mark McGee, a guy who writes a lot of books about Bill McFarlane and the AIP and stuff. So I got five pages of dialogue. I'm hungover, and I have to play this bandit in this liquor store scene with this other guy. And, it was, and they're filming me, and it's really bad. <laughs> so I end up in the film with like three different playing three different characters but you know it doesn't matter nobody's ever said anything I guess it didn't matter I, and, uh, so I think that adds more. that adds a little charm to the film I think they're, they're <laughs> oh my god <laughs> we filmed in my office my office is on Selma which were the old American International offices from the 1950s mm-hmm. uh, they're the Sam Arcos offices and that's where my offices were at that point and that's where the film director's offices are in the movie that goes from Mars. That would ex- I can't remember a whole lot. That would explain all but, the uh, uh, movie posters on the uh, wall. I was going to ask <laughs> whose posters those were. Uh, yeah. And there's a blooper reel. I don't know why I didn't stick them in the film. I saw them the other day. We just transferred them from the 35mm to HD. Mm-hmm. And there's an outtake reel for Bad Girls from Mars. And uh, there was a girl, I think Dana Bentley, was in that. Mm-hmm. I think she had short black hair. And I remember there was, I believe there's a scene where she takes a bottle of Nivea and she rubs it all over her breast. And it was just the greatest scene ever. <laughs> it had to be that movie because I, I don't think she was in any other comedy. She had short, short black hair and she just had these giant tits and she just rubbed this Nivea all over and I just, I just, I fell in love. That day. <laughs> it was just, just a fantastic, fantastic. I think she, she might have played the secretary. Yep. She, she might have played his secretary. Yeah, she was his secretary, uh, and uh, she was great in that role. Actually, everybody in there, I thought, uh, did very well in the in the film, and they seemed to be having a lot of fun. Uh, even Jay Richardson, who uh, I've seen in... He was like, great in that. Yeah. He was great in that. I've seen him in Witchcraft, and Gary too. Graver, and Gary Graver was the pool guy. I love that mm-hmm. scene where Gary's cleaning the pool, and Brink <laughs> goes, isn't that our DP? And then, and then Gary, he finds a penny, and he stuffs it in his pocket like it's the greatest thing in the world. And Jay's letting him clean his pool because all the, all the crew is living at Skid Row. It was just, it was just a great movie. If you, if you work in these movies, that movie was the movie. That was the movie for, for people who actually work in this industry. And then the script supervisor, this girl, I, I, I only worked with her this one time, but she would write these notes, and she wasn't in tune with what we were doing at all. Mm-hmm. She would write the script notes, and then on the side, in a red pen, she would write her opinion of what we were doing. <laughs> and and there's a scene where this girl, Greta, Greta, um, I don't know what was her name, but she had giant, again, she had giant, mm-hmm. and her name was Sherry, Sherry something, but she jumps in the pool, and the, and the, the, this Rottweiler jumps in after her. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then she swims around underwater. And the gag was, of course, is that she comes up at the other end, and her hair is still perfectly dry because we had this bouffant type of wig. Yet. And, we, and the whole gag was that she gets out of the pool at the other end, and her hair is dry and perfectly, you know. And mm-hmm. this girl, the script supervisor, she's writing this note. She's writing a note about the fact that this girl's getting out of the pool after being wet, but her hair is dry. And she says, I'm trying to tell them, but no one will listen to me. And she's writing this in red. And I'm like, I'm thinking, who are you telling this to? This is my movie. You know, who, who, you're, trying to, you're trying to wrap me out to a producer, but I am the producer. So who do you think is going to see these stupid notes? And she was like so oblivious to the fact that this was a comedy. Mm-hmm. And she kept writing these little asides in red on the side to cover her ass. You know, like, like she wanted to make sure that the world knew that she didn't approve of what I was doing. <laughs> It was uh, it was it was it was just great. Sherry Graham, that was mm-hmm. her name, and she had she was another girl with tits bigger than her head. And I put her in a lot of movies like Cyber Zone and uh, a bunch of other films. But she I, was, um, I noticed you work, uh, especially back then, you worked with a lot of the same actors across your films. Uh, when you wrote parts, did you write that with them in mind, or were they available and said, "Yeah, sure, I'll uh, I'll be in the movie." Well. Hang on. I'm uh, having a cigar in the backyard. Oh, sure. A lot of times we'd ride with, with the actors in mind. Mm-hmm. Because we had sort of a repertory company who knew us, and, you know, they, 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 they got the gags. And, right. And we, we knew them, and they knew us, and they knew the drill, and we knew we would have a <laughs> problem with them. They're not going to walk off the set. Sure. 
you, they they knew what kind of films you were making, and so. Uh, well, they knew we were going to have elaborate trailers, and mm-hmm. you know, and um, <laughs> we kind of knew the performance we would get out of people, and you could almost always tell who I was dating by who the female lead was. You know? <laughs> And uh, one of my favorite characters in the film uh, was Bob Ruth, who played the uh, the police mm-hmm. officer. But mm-hmm. they only credit him with two films. But he looks familiar, like he's been in a lot more. Uh, was mm-hmm. he actually only in those two films, or has he been in others? Oh no, no. I think he he had um he was in a lot of films for me. Mm-hmm. I saw him in Pulp Fiction the other night. Yeah, that that's where I recognize his face as well. And I was like, but he's a, he's a, he's the guy who owns the diner that the shootout happens mm-hmm. in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, no, he's in a lot of films, but I think he has to use a different name. Ah, he's okay. one of those few, he's one of those two guys that he's in Billy Frankenstein for me too. Oh, okay. And um, he's a lawyer who in Billy Frankenstein. But I, I saw him in Pulp Fiction. But I think that I think his other career is separated somehow in the IMDb. I gotcha. That, that that would explain it because I thought he looked familiar. So, uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Now a couple of our members uh, who are on the podcast normally uh, had a couple questions for you as well. Uh, one of them, uh, Mr. Scott Davis, he he first wanted to send you a message saying that uh, in regards to the topless wrestling scene between Edie Williams and Dana Bentley, he said, mm-hmm. "Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you." <laughs> Uh, I had a question. Uh, how long did that scene, uh, how many times did you go through that scene? Because uh, they look like they're really going at it. Well, you know, the movie was made in five days, and mm-hmm. so you can almost figure it didn't didn't take too long. Sure. Because uh, we can't, couldn't afford it. And it's 35 millimeter. Um, you know, it's not like today where you can just let the camera roll. You have to be very specific about each shot. Because uh, uh, back then, time really was money. <laughs> so, you yeah. know. I was going to ask. So that was that was shot on film. Then, uh, how mm-hmm. long did, did I know video cameras? Uh, the camcorders were kind of hitting big back then. Uh, did, did you always try to shoot on film if you had the budget for it? Or I wouldn't shoot on tape or sixteen millimeter. Mm-hmm. After I shot after I shot Biohazard on thirty five millimeter, I never shot on sixteen millimeter again until we got to. Um, Royal Oaks, and then we started doing we started doing some of the more minor films there in sixteen, ah. um, uh, some of the Christmas uh, lower end Christmas type movies, mm-hmm. and uh, but we never we never stopped shooting thirty five millimeter until um, the first time we shot HD on a movie was um, Glass Trap that Thomas C Thomas Howell movie I did with Stella oh. Stevens and mm-hmm. Marty Cove. And even then, we went right back to 35 millimeter for nuclear hurricane and accidental Christmas. And then eventually, things started going to HD, and they're pretty much HD now. Right. But uh, we never we never shot anything less than 24 frame full full HD. I never shot anything on a handy cam. I would, which actually leads me to one of the questions uh, uh, the members wanted me to ask is he wanted to hear your thoughts, kind of on indie film now to what it was like in the 80s and 90s uh, you know because you have so many such technology that's so much readily available to just about everybody well you know what I you know I can get on a rant you know as mm-hmm. I often sometimes do so there's, it's, there's, it's, it's, um, it's a it's a it's a yin and a yang sort of thing because now people have at their fingertips um, at, a, at a price anybody can afford the tools to learn to become a filmmaker. They just they just don't take them and use them. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that you can turn on a handicam and without knowing anything about lighting or sound or anything else, you get a picture and you get sound. And so people, they bypass, you know, taking the time to learn the craft. And so even though they're able to generate something that runs 70 minutes long, it doesn't resemble a professional product most of the time. You know, they, the, you know, the, amateurism really sticks out. And that's what I say to people. I said, you know, <clears throat> since time is no longer money, why, why don't you have the over-the-shoulder shot that you need? Why don't you have the hand inserts? Why don't you have uh, better lighting? Lighting is cheap now. Good lighting is cheap now. And, you know, it's because people want to become instant filmmakers. They don't want to take the time to learn the craft. And at least in the 
period of time that I grew up. And um, you had to learn. And 16 millimeter or anything else, you had to learn how to load a camera. You had to learn how to pull focus on the lens or change the lens and load a mag and unload a mag and sync your sound. And, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't go out with no knowledge right. and create a film uh, with a film camera and double system sound. You had to learn something of your craft. Even on the lowliest film like Invasion of the Blood Farmers, there was a certain craft level that you must have or you couldn't do it. And um, I came up to the old school. So, you know, people show me stuff and they send us stuff for a retro media DVD line. And we'll look at it. And some stuff's better than others. Right. But for the most part, most people are oblivious to the badness. <laughs> <laughs> and how far, how far beyond what's acceptable their mm -hmm. stuff is. And that's why I try to tell people. I said, you know, there's no way in hell, even technically, that this would ever pass a network QC. Mm -hmm. A laboratory would take this film and just tear it apart. You're, you'll never be able to get this past anything, play it on Cinemax or anywhere else. But if you're having fun and you're enjoying yourself, you know, keep doing it. But don't think it's going anywhere, you know. <laughs> Make your own DVD, sell them at conventions, God bless you, you know. And uh, I'll sleep better at night, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Now, uh, with a lot of your films, uh, Scott uh, Davis had a question for you. He goes, it seems like you may have put a, uh, a bit of your own personality in your productions uh, where they have a Fred Olin Ray feel to them. You know you're watching a Fred Olin Ray film. Uh, he asked, was there ever a point where you saw how a film uh, or a specific sequence came together and he said, this is it, this is exactly what I hope to achieve with that film or that sequence? Well, sometimes, you know, when you go out for something, you know, you, it sort of builds, you mm -hmm. know, when you start in the, the business, you know, you kind of see things when you first start editing them. And you'll see, well, I wish I had this. You know, I wish I had done this differently. Or you'll get be in the shower at one point in the morning from the day before, you'll say, oh, I missed this. You know, now I wish I had done this. And, and when you're in editing and you wish you had something, then the next time you're faced with that situation, You'll, you'll know. You'll know better to get this. But sometimes, yeah, sometimes you'll put a sequence together, and then when you cut it, you'll see it, and you'll say, yes, that's exactly what I wanted to do, and, and that sequence really worked, and, uh, and that's, that's what I wanted. Yeah, mm -hmm. of course. <laughs> and, you know, uh, most, of my, most of my stuff is trying to, you know, like, I do a lot of Christmas movies now. I noticed that. And I do women's thrillers for Lifetime and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I did a river rafting movie for Lifetime that will premiere in May or early June. And we went down this river. It was a real, it was a real river rafting uh, experience. And we went down that river like 20 times. But when I watched that sequence and, and, and all the different takes we did and all the shots we did and all that stuff, and I watched that sequence, yeah, I look at that and I go, that's it. That's it. I love that sequence. I think we did everything just right. You know. Well, and and it seems like each one of your films, you you do put your all into it, and uh, it comes across on screen. Even though you know, with Bad Girls from Mars, and uh, all the way through to your your latest work, uh, which uh, some of it seems a little more family friendly. Uh, is there a particular genre that you really enjoy doing? Because uh, you've pretty much run the gambit, I think, in genres for your films. Well, you know, there was a time in, when the VHS boom was on. You could make almost anything as long as it was confident uh, and you could make money. Mm -hmm. And that's when you could come up with crazy ideas and you weren't risking too much. You know, you could make Bad Girls from Mars. You couldn't get away with it today. Mm -hmm. But then you could. And so you could kind of take a crazy idea... And you could, you could make that film, and you could sort of extend, uh, you know, and do, you know, crazier stuff, like, you know, walk through a scene, you know, which made no logical sense at all, and rip the pages out of the script. And, and, you know, as long as you had certain elements, there was a public for it. It's, it's much harder today. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, but it was fun. It was fun. It was fun. It was kind of crazy. And we, I think we made it totally, by the time it was done, I think it had cost $60,000. And uh, it's harder today, right. uh, even a movie today that costs $60,000, like something like After Midnight, which we did recently with Richard Grieco and Tony Tatane. It's mm -hmm. harder to get back $60,000 today, even though 
everything it costs more and people pay more. It's harder to get that sixty thousand back than it was in, in like nineteen eighty eight. So you have to be a lot more careful now, and you have to make your choices much more wisely than you did then, because the market's not on fire anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's it's something that you have to you have to be more conservative. We were able to be a little crazier back then, you know. So now we have to be a little more conservative, and you have to think about things and make make your choices wisely. I still like blowing things up, and I like <laughs> firing guns. Uh, I never was an erotic thriller guy. I would never watch one on my own dime. Mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't spend a minute. I used, to, I used to joke, it wasn't really a joke, but I used to say that most of these films I would never watch them if I hadn't made them myself. <laughs> if somebody else had made Commander Squad, I would never turn it off. You know, <clears throat> I would never watch a Road Warrior rip off if some other guy had made it. Sure. You know, but this is, um, it's a business, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm a family guy. I have four sons. For the longest time, I was a single father raising a son on my own with no help and no life. And, um, you know, you're making business decisions just like any other guy who's trying to keep uh, you know, the, the, the rent paid and the car payment up and health insurance caught up. And uh, so you take films that you probably would have turned down if you had your choice. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, you're not going to live all year long on one movie. Right. You know, you know one, one movie, if you were very careful, would keep you at the uh, lower lower income spectrum, mm-hmm. you know. So you, you need two or three, if you're lucky, four movies in a year, you know, to, to keep, keep it all going. So, you know, you end up taking the erotic thrillers or whatever it is, you know, whatever right. they're making, submarine movies with Michael Dudikoff, you take what comes along, you know. M- movies about snakes on a submarine? Uh, like... mm-hmm. <laughs> I enjoyed that, though. I enjoyed making that. They're that was all a fun movie. And I like that. Because, mm-hmm. Let me tell you something. I would rather film, I would rather film, I'd, I'd rather turn the garbage can over and let 30 live snakes on the floor around my feet than to shoot a, shoot an empty floor and let some guy put CG snakes in there later. Sure. You know, that's like the river rafting thing. Instead of putting people on a raft in a green screen space, I would rather go down that river live 20 times. Mm-hmm. You know, because that's what I got in the business for. I didn't get in the business to stand on a green screen stage. I didn't go in the business to stand on a, uh, a, an apartment set in Canoga Park uh, with a Christmas tree and some girl crying over the side of her engagement me. I got in the business to go down that river 20 times. Sure. You know? CGI gunfire? That's bullshit. You know, if I got a team of commandos, I want to cut loose a thousand blanks by lunchtime. That's what I got in the business for. You know? <laughs> I want things as real as possible. You know, oh. we get venomous. We yeah. turned that garbage can over and 20, 25 live rattlesnakes hit mm-hmm. the floor almost every take. You know, get your snake boots on, man. We did. <laughs> I was one of the snake wranglers. We only had two. I said, give me one of those sticks. I kept picking those rattlesnakes up and I'd go, you get back over there. <laughs> you get back over there. You're not going anyplace. Get back over there. You know? Yeah. You, know? It, 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 you look at it nowadays, too. I'm always a big fan of practical because I think not only... Uh, does it look better, but they age better? Because uh, you look at a film like, well, Dinosaur Island. Uh, you know, you you look at it now; they would probably shoot that all in like a cheesy green screen. But you uh, was it? You were part of uh, John Carradine's ranch where you shot that in it. David, David, or David, yeah. excuse me, David. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, Roger didn't like stop motion. We were going to do all stop motion. We had a little bit in there, but Roger was really insistent on using his old carnosaur dinosaur that he had in storage. <laughs> he even had to take a stop motion sequence out and use a puppet in its place. I couldn't believe it. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, crazy. But that's him. That's the way he is. It's, uh, sure. You know, it's 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 funny. It's funny like that because you know if you see a girl like in you see like on um whatever that sea snakes or whatever that movie was. Right. You see a girl walking around in her bare feet, and those are real snakes. Like, there's that one scene with Krista Allen. Mm-hmm. That's a scene that I really wanted to do, where he said, I'll, I'll be back. And he comes back, and she's sitting there, and she's got about 20 snakes all around her neck. Oh, live, yeah. All live snakes. And she's sitting there, and he's like going, don't move. And Luke Perry's there. And he's kind of picking these live snakes off of her neck. And she's got like 20 live snakes all coiled around her face. And he's putting them down, and he's picking them off real slowly. And I wanted him to get really close. It looked like almost like a romance scene, like he's about to kiss her, and he's got his face so close that he's just 
lifting these live snakes off of them. If you've got a snake phobia, that thing is going to do it for you. <laughs> and it wouldn't be the same if they were CG or rubber. Mm-hmm. They had to be real, live snakes. And that was, that was the best scene in the movie. You know, it was almost it was sexual, but, I mean, she sat there and let us plant all those fucking snakes on her. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> and there's somebody off camera catching each one of them. And mm-hmm. that was a submarine. And, and if they got behind those tubes and those pipes, you'd never catch them again. Yeah. And it was full of pipes and, and, and places for them to hide. If any, we never lost a single snake. Well, that's good. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which uh, submarine were you able to shoot that on? Uh, do you remember? That was the one from um, um, the Kelsey Grammer movie. I think it was called Down Periscope. Oh, okay. Sure. Uh, yep. Yeah, that, that's a fun movie. I, 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 that was a blind buy for me, actually, and uh, I put it in and was surprised uh, that, yeah, it was it was entertaining. Uh, <laughs> um, so uh, I don't want to keep you too much longer, sir, but uh, uh, why don't you, uh, could you tell us if there's anything new you've got on the horizon coming out that we should keep an eye out for from uh, from you? Well, people think I haven't worked in years, and I keep telling them, you're just not watching the right television. <laughs> <laughs> I work a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, coming up in uh, May, June, I'm not sure exactly the date, on the Lifetime uh, channel, mm-hmm. uh, they just changed the title. It was called Eyewitness, but now it's called, um, I hate this title, but it's called River Raft Nightmare. Oh, okay. And um, it's got uh, Bridget Brana from Army Wise and Ivan Sergei and Perry King. Mm-hmm. And uh, my pal Tim Abel, and that is a, um, like I said, that's the uh, it's um, these this mother and her daughter run afoul of these escaped convicts, and they have to go down this uh, uh, river um, to escape. Sure. And that's that's coming up. Mm-hmm. I just just finished filming in Buffalo, upstate New York, Buffalo, uh, Niagara Falls, a movie called A Prince for Christmas. Oh, okay. And um, that was bitterly cold, but it was one of those opportunities. I never make, I never take the easy way out. Mm-hmm. It was it was freezing, but I was able to rent a, a cold fired uh, steam engine train, which was fantastic. And um, it's a beautiful, beautiful film. It'll be out at Christmas time, of course, on television, and that'll be on the Ion Channel. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, my movie collision course with Tia Carrera and Dee mm-hmm. Wallace. Is coming up on the Lifetime Movie Network, and that is an airplane disaster film. Oh, okay. Um, After Midnight uh, is on DVD in mm-hmm. June, and um, that's kind of it for right now. I'm working on a combat script for a major action star, but I haven't locked that in yet. So, Oh, fun. It'll, it'll probably film in June, but I don't have it locked in yet, sure. so I can't really... Mm-hmm. But that's enough for me. <laughs> I'm going to be at Chiller this next week in New Jersey. Okay. And uh, Michelle Bauer and I will be signing the Blu-ray, new Blu-ray of Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. Yep. I have my copy and right here. <laughs> Biohazard comes out on Blu-ray in about four weeks. Nice. And, uh, yeah, we're doing, we're doing our own Blu-ray. We're not going through distrib- uh, distributor. Mm-hmm. Um, because I got... I just... I, I did the I did the math, and for me to go through a distributor on the Blu-ray would put me right back at the uh, the dollar level of going out on DVD, and I just don't. It's just too much work. So I'm only going exclusively through Amazon. That's the only place. I'm not doing any third-party sales, mm-hmm. and I'm only doing exclusive Amazon sales on those. And um, it seems to be working. We're we're really kind of sticking with um, uh, stuff that we have. You know, the original 35-millimeter camera negatives and stuff. But the stuff is beautiful, and it looks it's never looked better. The Hollywood Chainsaw uh, Transfer, I, mm-hmm. I never saw it that sharp before. And that's, that's something that really kind of disturbed me, because at Christmas, I received uh, the Blu-ray set of every Bond film ever made. Oh. And I put them in, and I swear to God, they didn't look any better than the DVDs <laughs> <laughs> that I'd seen. And I saw the Vincent Price mm-hmm. Blu-ray sets. And they didn't look any better than the DVDs. And I'm saying to myself, I don't get it. Because Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers is twice as sharp on its Blu-ray right. than the James Bond films and the Vincent Price films. And those are films from MGM. 
And so I'm guessing that those weren't transferred from their original negatives or something. They must have, I don't know what they were transferred from. I really think they were transferred from, um, from television mm-hmm. um, transfers from years ago because they're not that sharp. They're not as sharp as Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, and that movie's made in six days. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that Hollywood Chainsaw Hooker transfer is sharp as a, it's sharp as a razor. Yeah. And so I, I, now, now I start questioning all these Blu-ray transfers that people are bringing out of major films. I start wondering, what the hell's going on here? Why, aren't, why isn't Goldfinger sharp, razor sharp? Why not? And you would, you would think they'd take their time with those, because some of those are, are considered the you know classics, and uh, that they take the easy way out with some of these transfers, I know. Uh, I've seen it yeah, myself. Yeah, I, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. You know, when, you, when, you, when a movie that had a budget of $50,000, uh, you know, and had a pretty, and that, it was a 2K scan, but, you know, still, it, it, it's, it's, it's crisper, cleaner, mm-hmm. and sharper, than a, than a major studio HD transfer, something something something's funny. So something's yeah, out of me. <laughs> well, yeah. at least yeah. you get the technology now where you can self distribute, and uh, with social media, uh, it can be pretty popular. I saw a lot of the sales for the Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers Blu-ray really sold uh, well. It was it was funny. I underestimated when I first shipped them. I had a I only made a thousand of the first ones because they were all signed. I had to sit and sign a thousand covers, and I only sent three hundred of them to Amazon. And then, of course, they sold out in four hours. And I was like, "Oh my god!" It took me a week to get the rest of them there. I should have sent them all at once, you know. Mm-hmm. And because um, I didn't think I didn't know what the market for these would be. Sure. And um, the second run, which is what we have now, aren't signed. Mm-hmm. But they have like a mini poster on the inside cover, uh, which is you know suitable to, to be signed. And uh, so we only did, like I said, we only did a thousand of the signed copies, which was, which had a you know reversible cover. Sure, but they're very strange. So anyway, it'll work out. But uh, we are going to do a couple of Blu-rays of other people's stuff, and we did make a deal for the Alien Factor. Oh, nice! So we're uh, transferring that from the original negatives. Great. But I'm not going to do too much, too much of that because mm-hmm. I don't know if anybody wants that or not. But I always love that movie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, that's well, see if anybody goes for the Alien Dead, I'm going to do Alien Dead. Oh, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I saw an element. Well, uh, is there some place uh, they can find your stuff at? Uh, is, is it Facebook and is, is there another website where they can catch your stuff at? You know, we have retromedia.org uh, mm-hmm. on the web. I don't keep it up to date that much, um, you know, because I'm not, you know, it's like, like I was trying to tell you, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I, sure. I'm a filmmaker first, mm-hmm. and, um, and uh, it's kind of like the convention thing. I don't do a lot of conventions um, because I don't, I don't sell anything, mm-hmm. you know. I don't like making scenes for people. I feel, I feel funny, you know, telling somebody that something costs this and then handing them five dollars change. Yeah. You know, because I have a career. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not it's not a, as a convention guy. I don't sign uh, or I don't charge to sign anything. Sure. You know? And in my wildest dreams I could never see myself doing that. Uh, which makes it very tough for me to be at a table. I, I did Fright Night in uh, Louisville mm-hmm. and um, you know, I'm at a table, there's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> And they had a they had an atrium that was so hot, and and I heard them say that this guy Jim Kelly, the guy from the Inner Dragon, he was kind of complaining because he was in this atrium that was so hot, and I was in this air conditioned place, and and they said, you know, Fred, people are saying you're never at your table. I said, I'm I'm, I'm always within fifty feet of my table. I said, I'm just kind of a wandering sort of guy, but I'm always there. Mm-hmm. I said, listen, why don't you give why don't you give Jim Kelly my table, just give him my table and bring him in from the weird time. And I never forget, he came and took my table and never even said thank you. He was kind of this grumpy guy. <laughs> and, uh, and they said, well, how about you sign, you sign at the, 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 the convention has a table. And you sign there and we'll just announce that you'll be there from this hour to this hour. They're great. So then, then, then Cinema Wasteland asked me to come there. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay. Good. But they got, you got to see the table. I said, okay, put me next to Michelle by but I know what I'm going to do. So I created a special... Hollywood Chainsaw Hooker poster 
that doesn't have a credit block or anything at the bottom. It has this whole open area where people can sign it. And I put them out, and I do it for a veteran's charity. Oh, okay. And the poster's not for sale. Mm-hmm. It's a donation only. There's a sort of a tip jar. And people put anything they want in there. I don't ask them what they're putting in there. I don't care. Just put anything in there. Michelle signs it, and I sign it. And it gives me a reason to go to a convention. And that's what's on my table. And, uh, and all the money that comes from that poster goes to my veterans' charity. Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah. Well, I'm an American Legionnaire. Sure. A Navy veteran. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gives me a purpose to stay at the table. So that's how it works for me. And I maybe do one convention every two years or less. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I, don't, I, don't, I don't like to do written interviews sure. because I write for a living, and, and that's tough enough. You know, right. But I'll talk to people. I'll talk to them. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today, sir. It's been a a real pleasure and an honor. Um, I'm going to let you go, but uh, thank you. Let me tell you one one more thing. Oh, sure. Go ahead. I I saw it the other day, Mm -hmm. and I'd completely forgotten about it. And if I don't tell somebody, I'm going to forget about it. It's going to be lost forever. Okay. I I saw some slides, and I was scanning some slides, and I saw a picture of myself with two girls. And I'm, I'm closing with these two girls, and I'm looking at them, and I'm saying, I have no clue who these girls are. And I scanned the photo, and I kept thinking about them, and I was thinking about them, thinking about them. I'm like, who are these two girls? I said, obviously, I'm, I'm saying, I'm, it's from a movie, but I can't think of the movie. And then it finally it hit me. I did, I took over this movie called Star Hunter. Mm-hmm. It was a Roger Corman, Roger Corman film, had Ryan McDowell, Scott Stevens, and the most bizarre, and I had completely forgotten about this weird shit that used to happen, and we, it would just, we would just do these things, and then I completely forgot about it. There was a movie called Virtual Desire with Julie Strain. Oh, okay. And it was a Jim, it was a Jim Minorsky movie. Jim Minorsky ran off to do, I think, The Wasp Woman, and, he, and the movie was left unfinished. So they said, would you finish this movie? I said, okay. And about the same time, there was this movie called Star Hunter, and they hated it. And they said, we want you to come in and, and reshoot half hour or whatever it is of this movie. And I said, oh, okay. And so they gave me like $11,000 cash in an envelope for the Star Hunter shoot. They said, here you go. This is, we're not going to give you any checks. It's just, here's some money. Sure. And what they said they wanted to do, and this is crazy, but just if you compare these movies, I think they're both on DVD. There was a police station uh, set at a place called Lacey Street where they shot Saw. It's a, it's a mm-hmm. studio here in town. It's native alleyways and stuff. And that's where Star Hunter and Cyber Zone and Nightshade and sort of shot a lot of movies. So they had all these extras. These two girls, I think, were prostitute extras. Anyway, they had this whole sequence and there's all these extras and there's this big, and this big dolly move through the police station as these cops come through and then the cop would come and sit down, and he would talk to his partner, and this is for Star Hunter. Then they get this report, and they go down, there's this big firefight between them and this robot that's supposed to be Rodney McDowell, I think. Mm-hmm. And what they wanted me to do is to bring Ross Hagen and this other guy who's supposed to be a detective in Virtual Desire, and they would sleep in their cars because they're an overnight suit, and we would do this big dolly move for Star Hunter. Then they would go wake Ross and them up, Ross and them would come in, and then I would do the same dolly move with the same extras through the police station, and Ross and the other day would ad-lib see, uh, dialogue for Virtual Desire, and they would walk the same dolly move through the same extras, through the same shot, and do the same scene, and it would be then cut into Virtual Desire. <laughs> and, and we did. We did, and it only occurred to me, because I kept thinking to myself, who are these two girls? Who are these two girls? And... And if you watch those two movies, Star Hunter and Virtual Desire, you'll see these police station scenes that are identical, except they're different cops walking the same exact dolly track through the station, the same extras doing the same motion, and they're shoving the guy down and jerking the sunglasses off some punk as they walk by. And all the backgrounds are doing the same thing, but they're two different films and two different sets of cops walking through these two these scenes. And every time we would set up a shot, we'd shoot it for a Star Hunter, then we'd go get these other two guys. They would come <laughs> in and they would do the same. They would do the same thing. Wow! And, it, and it, it, it was yeah, it was one of the most bizarre situations we were ever in. 
And the only thing that compares to it was a movie that we did called Final Examination mm-hmm. with Carrie Wurr. And it was for Warner Brothers. And there was sort of a titty version of it. And then there was a clean version of it for TV. Well, Andrew Stevens wanted to get his SAG health insurance covered. So in one version, Andrew Stevens plays the lead detective, you know, who's grilling everybody throughout the film. And in the version with all the tits in it, he didn't want to be in it, so he had Jay Richardson play the detective. So we would shoot the scene once, and Andrew would play the character. Then we would do the whole scene over again, and Jay Richardson would play the detective with the same actors. <laughs> so that there, every scene was shot twice, with one actor in that place, and then with another actor playing the same role in the same setup. So that there were two versions of the film, with two different actors playing the detective. But Andrew, because he's such a wise ass, he gave his character name, he called himself Hugh. Hugh Janus. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and he, and, and, and so he made the other characters be saying, listen, Hugh, Hugh Janus. <laughs> and, and it was just stupid. But, I mean, that's the kind of weird shit that would go on all the time. And every time Andrew gave you your paycheck, at the bottom of your check, you would write Hugh Quote them on your check <laughs> down in the, down in the indenture on the bottom left hand side of your check. Absolutely <laughs> true. That's that was the kind of place that was. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. I just I just I, I, I'm going to completely forget about those two girls. That photo of those two girls, but I, I completely forgot about that whole business of waking those guys up in the car, dragging them out of their sleep, and making them walk through that shot, and then sticking it into this other. Movie mm-hmm. called Virtual Desire. Well, that's Crazy. that's uh, I think the epitome of uh, cinema resourcefulness, right there. Uh, <laughs> How stupid is that? <laughs> well, uh, thank you again, sir, very much. Okay. Uh, this, this has been great. I love the stories, and uh, I appreciate your time definitely. Okay, well, let me know how this all turns out. Well, definitely. We'll send you the links in that, and uh, uh, maybe we can talk again sometime. All right, thanks. Thanks, Fred. Bye-bye.